thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So tonight we're continuing our study of the book of uh, Exodus, and we're going to look at chapter 22, 23, which are still part of the covenant of Sinai. And um, to put things back into context, remember that the these laws that God gave Israel happened before the um, golden calf incident. But they happened with the golden calf incident in mind. This is why we've looked at the golden calf before going through the laws. God foreknew that the people will betray him. And in preparation for that event, gave them laws that will fit, that will be fitting to their state. Do you understand what I'm saying? God knew that they will act in this way. And in preparation for them acting in this way, gave them laws corresponding to their state. It is important for us to keep these things in mind because otherwise we're going to be puzzled by some of the laws. Since when we look at them, they look less than perfect. In other words, there is a tendency or temptation that we may have to think that since God is giving laws, these laws must be perfect and lofty. We are expecting God in, the, in these laws to give us a glimpse of heaven. We read, we read Exodus, we read these laws coming from God, and we are looking for an image of heaven. It's quite natural in our psychology, in our psychology of the divine, which is modeled on our understanding of what God should be like and how He should act. Right? We back project on Him what we think we would do if we were in His shoes. In other words, we almost think of this as a performance. Your kid is going to play the piano or the guitar or whatever in other instrument, or your kid is going to read in, in church you know that you're going to do your best to prepare that child. And you expect the child to do his or her best during that performance. And we think God here is sort of doing his best. Well, in one sense, he is. He is absolutely doing his best because, does only that, because God does only his best. But the piece that we miss is that we think 
that he's talking to saints. We think he's talking to angels. Or perhaps we might think that God is giving laws that have nothing to do with the state of his people. We think those laws are completely independent of the context in which the laws are given. And that will cause significant puzzlement on our part and difficulties that really do not exist in the text. There are difficulties on our part because we have taken the text and put it into a completely different context from its original purpose. If we now go back and think about the golden calf, think about what they're going to do, we have a better model in mind, a model we're very familiar with, a model that God inscribed in the life of the family so that he may teach us about himself. When you create laws for your kids at home, you're not creating laws for canonized saints, are you? If you now back away for a minute and take, suppose there was somebody recording what you're saying to your kids. That person is recording what you're telling your kids. And then they inscribe those things as laws given within a Catholic family. Take those laws now given in this Catholic family and project them out 2,000 years where the entire context of our lives here is lost. 2,000 years later, maybe we're reading things in Mandarin. Maybe everything got translated into Cantonese and then moved into another language and some Bible study on, an, on a far-off planet is studying what a Catholic family in 2010 were to say to their kids. Okay, you're not going to tweet after 8 o'clock and I'm not going to let you do your texting um, unless you use proper English and only if it's important, and no, you're not going to use the iPhone, and no, you tweet, texting, iPhone. You'd think that the family would be telling the kids, you're going to go to Vespers, and you will say the rosary kneeling very slowly. Actually, better, you will chant the rosary with candles, and you will fast in the morning and don't eat sweets and offer all your sufferings and don't forget to um, um, uh, consider all the virtues tonight and see which ones you're still failing to grow in. That would be what a Catholic family ought to do. Not be concerned with these other things. Yeah? So, fundamentally, one of our problems in dealing with the text is we are not humble. We do not recognize that in a very deep way, the problem of society at large is sin. Our nature is broken. Culture in general is dragging, dragging us down to hell. Our own preoccupations are far from heaven usually. Prayer is a second thought, an afterthought. 
This is our condition. This is how we're living. Many people aren't even free from their passions. Many are addicted to different things. A lot are suffering from emotional neglect, from abuse, from situations where parents have not been able to give the children what they needed. That's the human condition after the fall. If you've had experience with people in a situation such as this one, if you've been a counselor for years, the laws you would give would be very different than if you've never dealt with anybody who had problems. Would you agree? In other words, a counselor, a good counselor, would be very realistic. If a counselor is dealing with somebody who's suffering from emotional neglect, the first thing the counselor will say is, don't beat yourself up. If you're suffering from some sort of uh, abuse and you are now stuck on drugs or gambling or what have you, do not beat yourself up and try to understand that fundamentally, this abuse of yours, this, this, um, this um, dependency, because you're now a, um, uh, you're completely hooked on something, right? That is not your fault. And if you've dealt with people that have, that suffer from things like that, you'll find out that it's very difficult for them to believe it's not their fault. Because it's ingrained in their mind and their heart that they are worthless. Jesus understood this very, very well. When he met the woman who was in, um, who was in an adulterous relationship, he asked her, where are those who are condemning you? Or has anyone condemned you? And she said, no. And he said, neither do I. Yet he understood where she was coming from, and then he gave her a gift which is what she really desired. Because Jesus will not give us something that we will throw away. He said to her, go and sin no more. You have to understand, when Jesus said this to this woman, he wasn't being stern. He wasn't being disciplining her. He gave her what she was longing for. The ability not to sin again in that area. Otherwise, he would not have given it to her because you don't throw your jewels to the swines. You understand? She was thirsting for him, couldn't find him, and went after trash. Because filling yourself with trash is better than being hungry. But now that she came in contact with the real deal, and she recognized it, but she would never ask for it because she did not consider herself worthy of him. He knew all of this. If you really understand it from a psychological angle, if you've, if you've dealt with people who really suffer from these sorts of things, you would see the great compassion and realism of the Lord. Now, this is the same Lord who is giving them these commands. Very realistic. Very realistic. I talk to a lot of people. A lot of people suffer from these issues. And in many cases, many, many priests are really not equipped to deal with these issues in the confessional. 
So if, if you know people who are suffering from these types of issues, who are suffering from any kind of addiction, it is important to tell them when they go to the confessional, they may be hit on the head by a priest who simply does not know how to deal with this issue. Priests are not psychologists. We can't necessarily ask them to or require from them to be counselors. It is, so therefore, a lot of these people tend to shy away because the experience is harrowing for them to go to confession. The pain is too great because they go there and they get beaten on the head. That's how they see it. But it's important for you to remind them that it is extremely important to go to confession in a situation like, like this one because they need all the spiritual support they can get in order to build back the foundation. The reason I want, why I'm talking about this is because I want to give you the right context when you look at those chapters. Otherwise, you get very, very confused. It seems God is arbitrarily talking about this and that and the other. You will see it in a minute. And only about certain things and giving them laws that don't seem to be even perfect. That's because giving them laws requiring perfection without grace is condemning them to hell. Do you understand that? If I take a kid who is unable to live a virtuous life, he just cannot. He never had that formation. And I'm not giving him what is required to live this virtuous life. And yet I expect him to do that. That is cruelty. Do you, do you understand that? So in the same way, if God were to give them the Beatitudes without the means to live up to the Beatitude, which is the sanctifying grace, what would he be doing? That is why the statement he made in Ezekiel is so startling. I gave them laws by which they could not live. See, God is very realistic. Sometimes some people really have to hit bottom. Some people need to go live on the street, become bums, live on the sidewalk before they recognize, I cannot do it on my own. I can't get out of this mess that I'm in on my own. I need help. Sometimes you have to go to that extreme. A perfect example is Father Korabi. Right? You've, you've heard his, his uh, conversion. If you haven't, I really recommend. If you have not heard the conversion of Father Korabi, I really recommend you grab that CD and listen to this conversion. It's an amazing story. Right? But sometimes you just have to go that far. So when God made the law, he wasn't giving the law thinking about Our Lady here. Okay? He's thinking about those who's going to betray him in the golden calf. The same is true of the church. The same is true of the church. The church is setting a bare minimum, a bare minimum, because the church does not want people to be condemned. So when the church says, you only are, you're only required to go to confession once a year and to receive communion once a year, this is the minimum requirement that you ought to fulfill to remain in union with the church. But it's certainly not the Beatitudes. Yeah? Because the church is expecting all of us to act responsibly and to understand that our job isn't just to do the minimum 
but to do an act of love which pulls us forward, which tries to unite us with Jesus. So we should be doing a lot more than a minimum. So when God gives those laws, these are not the laws for perfection. If you live by those laws, you're not perfect. He's trying to give them enough laws, enough to keep them steady until the coming of Christ. Because there is no salvation in those laws. Those are not laws that can save them. Do you understand that? If you begin to meditate on this, on, this, on this idea that these are not laws that can save them, then you ought to spend some time thinking about this. Why did he wait for so long? And the next thing that should strike you really, really hard is, why me today? Why have, has he called me to this sanctifying grace? Why has he made it possible for me to live a life of sanctifying grace and not my neighbor? There is a, there must be at least a sense of wonder and awe and gazing at the mystery of salvation that says, why me today? Because if the truth be said, God wills the salvation of all. That is absolutely true. Christ died for many. In the Aramaic, many means everyone. Right? He didn't die for a little group or for some. He died for all, so that all may be saved. That is the mercy of Jesus Christ. That is His mercy, not His justice. His mercy. Out of sheer, pure mercy, He died for all. But it's also true that God does not save all. We know that. He simply does not save all. He could if he wanted to, but he doesn't. Why? More importantly than why as an abstract question, because that would reach the mind of God, the more important question is, why you? Why me? That is the key question to ask. Put it in a different context before I get into this, because... All of this, I, I, I seem that I'm sort of wandering away from this, but I know the effect that these chapters have on our mind. They're confusing. How many of you read this, these two chapters before coming here, by the way? Okay. When you read them, what did you get out of them? I want to listen, hear you out. Tell me what you got out of them. Ridiculous. Confusing. Pardon? Foolish at times. Right? But it's God talking, right? You see how there, there is a possibility for doubt to insert itself into the validity of Scripture? Number one, the possibility that God makes no sense? Number two, and how that doubt can warm itself into, um, or rather this difficulty warm itself into a doubt, and that doubt can lead to lack of faith? That's why I'm trying to put a more broad context around this for you to be able to gaze at them with the right perspective. The right perspective. God is a loving Father. Start there and never lose sight of this. God is fatherhood. He's looking at a son who is a stubborn, wayward, foolish 
um, rebellious kid. That's what he's dealing with. You know why it's really difficult for this image to stick? Because it's us. And to the extent that we're not prepared to look at ourselves this way, if you can't look in the mirror and say to yourself, I am foolish, I am wayward, I am rebellious, I am stubborn, I don't want to listen, this is who I am. If you can't do that yourself, honestly, in all honesty, then what do you think you're suffering from? Pride. Pride. In, in big ways, right? And if you think that um, that might make you something different than what Catholics are, always remember the prayer of St. Philip Neri. I do recommend you read the life of St. Philip Neri. He's a wonderful saint. He had a book of jokes. He collected jokes. Wonderful saint. His prayer every day, every day, when he started the day, was, Lord, remember, or watch over, I remember Philip today, lest he betrays you again. Remember Philip today, lest he betrays you again. So realistic. So realistic. This is who we are. That's why it doesn't stick. But that's what these laws are dealing with. Your kid is completely crazy. You leave house for two hours, he has a party. He's invited all the drug addicts. They're building the golden calf. These days, it's rock and roll. Any form of this crazy music, right? And he couldn't care less. That's what he wants. So, if, if that's who you're dealing with, what kind of laws are you going to have in place? Come on, I want to hear it. What would you tell him? Okay, would that be enough? No parties? You think it would be enough? Okay, what do you have to do? But those are just telling him. You're out of there. As soon as you're out of there, the party, the drugs, the rock and roll, everything is there. So what do you do? You can't take him with you everywhere. You can't take him with you everywhere. It's not, you can't. You're going to work. What do you do? I just want to show you how these laws are completely meaningful when you start looking this way. What do you do next? Okay. You, okay. You give him punishment. We're going to see some of those here today. All right? Well... That's the, you see, this is it. Kick him, see? Kick him out. That's another one of those questions you need to sit in front of the Lord and ask him. Why haven't you kicked me out yet? I deserve to be kicked out. Why haven't you done that yet? Now you're in a meaningful conversation. So you're not going to kick him out. Let's, so what do you do next? Let's focus on you don't want him to have a party. What do you do next? Yes. Okay, he's not responding. He's still not responding. But he's not responding to this. He's not responding to your love because he's completely hooked on drugs. Take a cell phone. Okay, so the law would be what? You shall not use the cell phone unless for emergencies. Yes? No, 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 you haven't yet. That's what I'm saying. Well, we're starting. My point is we're just starting. Yes? Yes, you, you can try to take the means away, but you need, you, he need to eat, doesn't he? But what he will do is he'll open the fridge, take whatever is in the fridge, go out, sell it, and buy some drugs. So what do you do? 
Right, but they're still doing stuff. The golden calf. See? Precisely. You took the, he, he took them out of Egypt, and they still did that. That's what he has in mind. Yeah, but, but just leave that aside. Think about you. Think, don't think about the desert. I don't want you to go there right now. I just want to think very simple, concrete terms. Your son wants to have the party. He's dying to have the party. You have to go to work. Now, what do you do? Okay, how do you do that? No, no, no. Practically speaking, what do you have to do? But you can't be there yourself. Okay, now we're getting a babysitter. And what do you do to the babysitter? What do you say to the babysitter? Okay, not only that, you know your kid is going to try to sell the food from the, from the fridge. What do you tell her? He can't open the fridge unless it's for noon or at 10 o'clock. You have to be very concrete, right? And make sure when he opens the fridge, you mark how much milk there was in, and you mark how much milk that, Right? You have to go down to this level to really tighten all these screws, wouldn't you? Yeah? Okay, now, let's just take this one law about the fridge, the food in the fridge. Well, you say, okay, I've marked everything in the fridge. I know what's in it. And when I come back home, this is how much I should be left in. Therefore, he will not eat more than this or less than that. All right? And if he goes down to the grocery store, already talk to the grocery store. Right? If he goes down to the street, already talk to the neighbors, there's a neighbor watch, they're going to see him. You need to go and get him from there. So you write all these things down. You write, because you're going you're gonna to have a lot of turnover. Not, who wants to be a babysitter for a kid like this? Yeah? Now you understand the prophets. You understand the prophets. None of them wanted to be a prophet. What did you get out of it? Yeah? Now, these laws have been written, fast forward 2,000 years. Somebody is reading laws written in a Catholic family, and he's reading these laws. This is how much milk there should be at the end of the day. And if he, What do you think they're going to think about those laws? Would they be able to understand them? The context in their mind is this is a Catholic family, right? Do you understand? Welcome to the Catholic family. This is what these chapters are all about. This is what these laws are all about. He knows he's dealing with a wayward, stubborn child. Or the other analogy he uses all the time. He's, he, he is the, the bridegroom and Israel is the bride. And she is a harlot. And he's going to use that image. The word harlotry is going to be used often to describe Israel. Do you understand that? But, somebody said, kick him out, right? See, this is why the image of kids' parents don't work as well. This is why he didn't use it as much. I use it because it helps parents. But he used the image of married life. What do we say about married life? There is no divorce. Because it is a covenant. Once God enters into a covenant with Israel... He will not rescind the covenant. Israel would love it for God to take the covenant away. We're free. Do you get it? We ourselves, our fallen nature, would love it if God would take the covenant away. No restriction on contraception. You don't have to go to Mass every Sunday. Imagine if the church did not require us to do this. How many would do it? Imagine the church said nothing. You can do whatever you want. It's open. What do you think will happen? 
Do you understand now how these chapters work? This is what this is all about. Never forget the psychology or the education that God is doing through this. This is who he's dealing with, and he's going to stoop down to their level and deal with them at their level because he loves them. He loves them. And that's the, this is the key at the end of the day. God is love. By this we mean that God sees things intellectually. Because God is a rational being. He sees things intellectually. He's not, um, he doesn't allow his emotions to get a hold of him the way they do with us. So he sees us with the entire truth that is in our makeup. So the way we grew up, the love that our parents gave us or didn't give us, the choices we made when we were kids or were imposed on us. He sees all of that. What offends God isn't the fact that somebody is stuck in some sort of a habitual sin because of something happening to him in childhood. That is not offensive to God by this person. A child grows up in a family where he's not shown any emotional love. So in the older days, parents would say, well, we're not going to hug the kid because if we hug the kid, we're gonna, we are going to um, uh, spoil him. So no hugs, no kisses. No words of love, nothing. What does that amount to? That's emotional. This is complete and utter emotional abuse. It's destructive to the child. And the parents say, we're doing our duty because we're bringing food to the table. We're, you know, we're doing what we should. We're sending the kid to school. We're paying for him. But fundamentally, they're destroying that kid. Now, the kid may not know that. He may grow up thinking that's normal. And then he gets into these devious behavior because, or these deviant behaviors, sex, sex, or alcohol, or gambling, or whatever, because he needs to feed the emptiness. There's a big gaping hole in him, and he needs to feed that hole with trash. Because the parents didn't catechize him, didn't teach him about the love of God, didn't do any of that stuff. The church can't do that either. Can't expect the priest to do that either. This kind of attention is extremely demanding on anybody's part. So the kid grows up thinking this is norm. And he's the, he, he's the, he's the one who is completely wrong. He's the one who is, um, there's something wrong with him and it's because of him. And that compounds his feelings of being unworthy of anything, right? So God, if, if that kid could see that God actually looks at him with the entire context in mind, and understands that he's where he is, not because of a choosing on his part, but because of what happened to him. Then suddenly, the child and the man will start to realize, wow, well, wait a minute, there is somebody who looks at me and is not afraid. There is somebody who looks at me and sees a leper, but doesn't run away. St. Francis, hugging the leper, right? But then God would expect that kid to seek help. God would expect that kid to do everything in his or her abilities to get out of this. God would expect that kid to yearn to be free. And to do whatever he or she can to be free. Even if, in some cases, that freedom is never granted here on earth. 
So there are some who die with that kind of addiction in them for their entire life. What they're not realizing is that if they're trying the best they can to get out of it, if they're trying the best they can to live a true life of grace, then their suffering is redemptive for others. The great mystery of suffering. So anyhow, I digressed significantly. It wasn't my intention. But I think, again, if I were to just go through the chapters and just you know, bombard you with some of the statements, explain them to you, you'd think I'm some sort of a magician. That I'm pulling a rabbit out of a hat. And you've got to wonder, how is he doing it, and how come I can't do it? I can't do that, which is not very helpful to you. But if you begin to understand the context behind this, and you take these chapters as a way to enter into a true, a truthful, and an authentic dialogue with God, then suddenly Scripture comes to life, and it makes sense. Yeah? Do you have questions before I get into a... The, the, the details of this. Oh, yes. Absolutely. These are broken kids. So, morally, God will not impute responsibility for somebody whose will is completely broken and cannot resist something. Somebody is addicted, by definition, means he's doing something. By the way, most addicts hate the addiction. Some don't, but most do. They wish they were not addicted. So, they're doing something against their will. And they are condemning themselves more than God would ever condemn them. So the suffering is very significant. Okay. That part, God understands, is something that they're suffering from. But if they don't seek help, then there is moral responsibility right there. You understand? They are required to seek help. And they should seek it in all the spheres. In the spiritual sphere, by going to confession regularly. Right? By receiving communion, by increasing their prayer life, by saying the rosary, by asking the session of the saints, doing all the things spiritually required for them to fight the world, the flesh, and the demon, and, 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 and Satan. Right? And then in the other areas, psychologically, to figure out why they have the issue, they should look into counseling. Right? And they should decide that whatever happened to them will not be happening to others. So they should be helping others if they can. That's works of mercy. There's so much they can do, even if there is never a release. Yes, absolutely. They be, they can, well, they may not be... So You're right, correct. They are not necessarily a victim soul, because God would not choose for a child to be raised and suffer from emotional abuse. Victim souls are something, a category completely apart. But they're suffering once... Once they begin to look for salvation and once they offer their suffering and when they do everything they can right, for wanting and desiring to be united to Jesus, their suffering is salvific. It's very powerful. Yeah. It doesn't lessen the pain. And, and one perfect example we have is St. Bernadette Subiru. Now, she is a uh, St. Bernadette. She is a uh, victim soul because Our Lady said, I promise to make you happy in heaven, but not here. Right? So they should take, they should take courage from, from the life of St. Bernadette because in, 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 in a way, when they embrace the life of grace and they try the best they can to live it, despite all the setbacks, so they don't despair, they don't give up, they, tr- they hope, they believe, they do acts of charity, as much as they can, 
they are indeed uniting their sufferings to that of Christ. And in many cases, healing does occur. I'm not saying they're not healed. In many cases, it is. But in some cases, circumstances may be too complicated. The stress level in their lives is too big. Other things preclude them, prevent them from being able to really seek counseling and healing and whatever, in which case they simply have to endure it and offer it up. Yeah? Yes. Oh, very good question. Weren't they feeling it was a privilege for them to be in the covenant? Here's how we can answer this. Go back and read the Beatitudes and then ask yourself the question if you think it's a privilege. If you answer, yes, it's a privilege, then you're far ahead on the way of sanctification. Most people will look at the last few Beatitudes in there. Blessed are you when they persecute you and when they say all kinds of things against you and they will do all these things in my name. Rejoice! Now, many people won't look at this as a privilege. That's the reality of it. Right? Because many people seek self-preservation, which is natural. They haven't sublimated that into eternal self-preservation. Yes, but see, man does not have that capacity to see the whole thing. Because passions play tricks on man. Because of the fact that our nature is broken, passion, our passions tend to take over. Right? When we say, for instance, somebody fell in love with somebody else, well, actually, they may not have fell in love at all. They may have actually uh, be simply infatuated. And two years later, they discovered it was an infatuation, there's nothing left, and then they just move on. Or the way a priest put it, yeah, you might fall in love more than once in your life. That might happen. You may be married to somebody, and you might fall in love with someone else. So what? You made a commitment, and you must live by it. This is foreign to many Catholics, even today. So the privilege, most would say, I don't need that kind of privilege. You understand? Israel was like that. This is why we study the life of Israel, because Israel was the greatest in that sense. No, no other nation could even approximate the, the kind of life God demanded of Israel. You understand that? But see, this is the key. So far, these laws do not save Israel. These laws do not lead to eternal life. God is not saying, do these things and you will be saved. These are provisional laws to teach them about who God is for them to think, we need God so that God may come in their midst. That's all they are. No, I am trying to tell you that what I'm trying to say to you is that the gates of heaven were completely closed. There is no sanctifying grace in the world coming from God in a general sense to all, apart from a chosen few. You understand? It, you, we have to wait for the coming to Je- of Jesus Christ for that to become a reality. Most people are born in original sin and suffer from it. There is no baptism. There is no confession. There is no way for them to live in a life of grace, therefore attain heaven. Well, the problem is that they were not waiting. They just wished they would go away. Only a remnant was waiting. That's the key. All right? Okay, let's see how far we can go uh, through all it. Was this helpful, by the way? Or is this a sort of a, you know, would have wished I didn't do any of that? Okay, good. Okay, good. 
So, bearing that in mind, keeping that in mind, let's go through this and see how much we can go through t- today, and we'll continue tomorrow. I might have to scale down some of that uh, appropriately. But, I'll give you an outline of these two chapters first, and we'll see how much we can cover. There are really two major categories in, this, in these two chapters. First, there are laws pertaining to loss of property or economic goods. So, it's all about how you're going to um, navigate through the social life of Israel when certain things are lost. God knows this is for, foremost in the minds of people. That's what they're worried about. And he's enacting laws to regulate how they're going to live socially. And then the second part is called categorical commands. These are prohibitions they must follow no matter what. And we'll go through those. So the first ones, notice, first he addresses their needs. He goes with the things that are of least importance. Then he moves to the things they really need to do. Because he understands the psychology. Right? Your kid comes to you and says, can I have ice cream? What do you say? Well, you might say no, or you might say, have you had supper yet? No. Okay, you can have ice cream. What kind? So you know you want to talk about supper, but where's the kid's head? In the freezer. So you have to get him out of the freezer first, right? So what do you do? You address the need of the kid. Oh, that's not very important, right? Okay. God follows the same psychology. So the laws pertaining to loss of property, economic good, we, he's going to talk about damage to property, damage to goods, damage to stocks, and then he'll, he, he's going to talk about the law of seduction. Why is he talking about the law of seduction? I'll tell you right now. This is in 22.17 through 23.19. It sounds completely out of place. If you read the chapter, you'll see he's talking about, well, you know, if uh, you lose this and that to your neighbor, then you should give him money. But if that loss was not, not because of something you did, then you're, you're okay. And he's going through, you know, all that stuff, goods and then stocks. And then in the middle of this, he says, if a man... Uh, seduces a virgin and lays with her, he must pay the father money. right, money. And if the father doesn't, and marries her, but if the father doesn't want to allow his daughter to marry this man, then he still has to give the father the usual thing that you would give for marriage. And you'd wonder, what, is, what does this have to do with anything? Well, it has everything to do with everything. Unlike our children today, back then, children were assets. When they grew up, they were of service to you. They lived in the house, and they performed a whole host of services. That is why when a man married a woman, it was an economic loss to the family. Today, most of us are employed. What our kids do do not affect our income. Or if we have our own business, what our kids do do not affect our income. We are not living on a farm where we need all the hands that we can get to do the work. And when someone is not there, work is not being done, translating into economic loss. You might have to hire somebody to do the work. You understand that? So if somebody comes and asks your daughter for marriage, he's taking, essentially, in in modern terms, look at it this way. Uh, IBM goes to Microsoft and grabs a couple of their engineers. What happens? There's a lawsuit. 
This is what we're talking about. It is so foreign to us because our society has, has, society has changed so much, we do not think of children in these terms. But back then, if you were to live as farmers, if you have farmers around you, you they'll completely understand. This makes complete sense to them. There's nothing, it isn't about the value of a woman, or, you know, demeaning a woman, putting at a level of um, uh, objects. None of that it has nothing to do with any of this. It has everything to do with the fact that there is economic loss when a, uh, a child is taken away from the family. Yeah? That's why the, these laws are here. Now, why is God talking about this? Because he knows that unless he tells them specifically, you're going to do that, nothing will be done. Or excesses will be done. The guy will be killed. And then you go into this blood revenge thing. Or the guy won't do anything. Right? So he's telling them the minimum necessary for them to function as a society. So you see, it's not at the level of what does it, what do you need to become a saint? These laws are about how you'll function as one society, as a kingdom of priests. That's the key here. This is what these laws are all about. And a kingdom of priests post golden calf. Yeah? Okay. Then he goes to this category. I can't see the word, categorical commands, categorical commands. And then there are three prohibitions given. The prohibition of sorcery, the prohibition of bestiality, the prohibition of apostasy. And then, so these three deal with your moral life. Now it's moral life. But notice, it isn't what sanctifies you. It's the thing you should not do at all if you were to be a member of the Society of Israel. It's the bare minimum. It'd be almost like saying to your kid, okay, look, you're not going to do crack. You're not going to do, um, I don't know what the other ones, I'm not a specialist in, in that field. You know, crack, B, C, D, whatever. Uh, but I'll let you smoke. You'd rather he d- doesn't even smoke. And I'm not even sure this is the right approach either. I mean, don't quote me on that. I'm not a specialist in this area, as I said. But something to that effect. Or, you know, I'll let you have a beer. Or you can have a glass of whiskey or whatever. Right? This is the level we're at. This is the level we're at. You understand that? Okay. This is the basic level we are at. This is not about... The law, you know, the rule of St. Anthony or St. Francis or St. Clair. <laughs> this is about how are you going to function as a society and not blow it up. Post-golden calf. He already knows this is coming. So first, the moral realm. Then he goes and he talks about concern to others. Charity. Concern for the disadvantaged. Judicial integrity. So you should be concerned for those who are disadvantaged, but also you should have judges who are uh, wise and impartial. Humane treatment of the enemy. Religious calendar and renewal of divine promises. These two last ones, religious calendar, this one, is essentially telling them you're going to regulate your life not just based on the natural cycle of growing and harvesting, but you can regulate your life on a supernatural cycle, which I'm going to give you, 
And that supernatural cycle will be superimposed on the natural one. So there'll be a time when you're going to sow and you're going to come and celebrate. When you come and harvest, you will celebrate. And when you're going to profit from the fruits in the fall, you will celebrate. So that's the liturgical calendar. They had to live by the liturgical calendar. Now, look what happened to us. Look what happened to us. First, we lost the natural cycle. How, how many of you are farmers here? Farmers. How many of you know farmers? One, two, two. How many of you have any idea how stuff is being grown? Okay. How many of you have seen an animal slaughtered? Yeah. Do you see that? We have no connection to the natural cycle. That's problem number one. Problem number two, most of us have no clue of the liturgical cycle. We've lost that too. So therefore, our lives are not structured around the liturgical cycle. We think of it as a cute little thing. Okay. How many of you know all the seasons in your calendar? Yeah. God gave them this liturgical calendar to help them regulate their social lives. Because this is what will lead them to consider a life of prayer. Now, third, which is a major tragedy and a disaster, in the Latin rite, they've done away with it because the majority of the uh, Latin calendar is what? Ordinary time. What kind of monstrosity is this? What is ordinary time? Those of you who are of the Eastern rites, you should know what your calendar is. And you should memorize it. And you should look at each season and understand what it means. You know why? Because God is giving us specific graces in each of these seasons precisely for our sanctification. Everything in its season. Just as there is rain and there is sunshine, there's a time to sow and there's a time to harvest. and There is an order to nature. There is an order to supernature. But because we don't realize it, we don't live it, we're not aware of it, what happens to us is that we let go by, of so many graces coming our way through the liturgical calendar of the church. Those seasons are not there just because it's cute. There are conduits of massive graces. So, for instance, if you understand that Advent is a season of penitence, it's a penitential season, then what, do you, what does that mean when it's a penitential season? What is God expecting you to do? Well, think about the season. It's what? It's fall or winter. No, fall. Sorry, it is fall. Okay, what do you do in fall if you were a farmer? It's time to do what in fall? You've done the harvest. 
right? That's the end of summer. What do you do in fall? You till. You work the ground, right? That's what somebody who lives as a farmer would completely understand that. Because they see in the ground a reflection of themselves, of their soul. So what are you supposed to do in Advent? You increase, you increase examination of conscience, you increase confession, and you fast. And God blesses you with graces. This is an example, right? But these are there in religious calendar. And after the religious calendar, there is a renewal of divine promises. If you do all these things, I will bless you. You see how these two chapters work? Those two, two chapters work? So first he addresses some laws pertaining to loss of property, economic goods, damage of property, damage to goods, damage to stocks, the laws of seduction. Then he goes through prohibition of sorcery, bestiality, apostasy, concern for the disadvantaged, judicial integrity, human treatment of the enemy, religious calendar, renewal of divine promises. So um, I'm not going to be able to cover most of that in detail, but I'm going to give you some highlights. I have about you know, five or ten minutes before the top of the hour. Let me give you some highlights which are uh, important. First, in the uh, damage to property, God establishes the law of self-defense. So, fundamentally, when you go back and read this chapter, you will see that what God is saying is this. If a thief is coming to your house by night, after sunset, he knows you're at home. Therefore, his intent, since he knows you're at home, and yet he's coming to steal something from you, his intent is possibly to kill you. That is very different than a thief coming to your home by day. Because by day, where are you if you're a farmer? You're out in the field, you're working, there's nobody. So the intent is different. God distinguishes between the two. And he says, fundamentally, he establishes the law of self-defense. He's basically saying that if he comes to you by night, there's a presumption of homicidal intent. So, the condition of imminent threat necessary to satisfy lawful self-defense by the householder is thus fulfilled. Hence, no blood guilt is incurred should the intruder be killed. You must defend yourself. Now, um, the proper understanding of self-defense is that when somebody attacks you, it's an act of charity on your part to stop him. You are being charitable towards him. Why? Because you're lessening his punishment. If he attacks your family and is able to harm your family, his punishment is going to increase. By stopping him, you are being charitable to him. Not only that, you must apply the least amount of required force to stop him. These are the two principles around it. But it's an absolute requirement for self-defense. That's why it is impossible to hold to the tenet that all wars are unjust. The principle that some people espouse that all wars are unjust is impossible to uphold, even without the laws of God. Why? Because there are, in wars, an attacker, an aggressor, and a defender. The one who's defending is absolutely justified to go to war if there are no other alternatives. If war is imposed on them, it is a requirement, it's a moral duty to go to war. You understand that? Okay. So, I think that, that was important to, to, uh, to highlight. Now, interestingly enough, uh, 
If you compare these laws to the laws of Ishnuna, Ishnuna is a city in Iraq, an ancient city where tablets of laws were found, and likewise the laws of Hammurabi, you'll find in both cases, and the laws of Ishnuna, the, uh, they deal also with these types of theft, and they distinguish between nighttime and daytime, but they're concerned solely with the protection of property. There is no uh, regard given to the humanitarian issue at all. And in the case of Hammurabi, they simply prescribe the death penalty for the thief who make a breach in a house or commit a robbery. That's it. Why? Because in both cases, their focus is on property, is on economics. In, 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 in the case of the laws that God gave Israel, the focus first is on the person. The dignity of the human being it trumps any economic loss. Okay. So there is a whole set of law dealing with bailment because um, it is completely possible for them to, uh, part of their economic life is to, for instance, say, look, I have these two cows. I want you to take care of cows for me because I'm going to do something else. My field is uh, fallow or not fallow. My field is not uh, uh, working right. Something's wrong. Please take care of my cows. So there are four different kinds of bailment that are listed there, and God specifically helps them understand, navigate the complexities of this. One is someone responsible. So I, get, I, I told my neighbor, take care of my cows. Okay. And my neighbor accepted to do it gratis. He's, not, he's doing it out of friendship. Then that's one case. If on the, other say, on the other case I say, okay, take care of my cows and I'll pay you. What is the different case? And, and on, so on and so forth. And so there's a whole list of laws dealing with bailment because it's important for their social lives. Today it will be translated into mortgages. Okay? So it would be a different kind of situation, but the same thing would apply. And then, as I said, there's this business of the law of seduction, but it's really, the context here is not sexual. It's purely in terms of losses. So, number one, remember that the Book of the Covenant, meaning all these laws I'm talking to you about, does not regulate the laws of marriage. There is no laws in here that tell you how marital life should be addressed, because presumably these were well understood as part of the oral tradition. So there are no written laws about marriage other than, in, in other words, how the marital life should be regulated. So this is not about that. What this is about is really about the loss that, that is incurred when a, uh, a daughter is seduced. So Ibn Ezra points out that the sequence of legal topics is from the case of stolen property to that of a stolen heart. So both are offenses that occasion economic loss and entail payment of compensation. Right. Why is God talking to them about this? Because this is what is important to them. That's what they're focusing on. So God is meeting them at the level they can comprehend. Yeah? That's the key. God is not writing a book to tell us how to get to heaven. God never write a, wrote a book to tell us how to get to heaven. God said, I will walk with you and lead you there. And this is what he's doing. Right? So this, this whole thing is dealing with the compensation for the loss of the daughter's services and potential value for the family. And it was called the mohar. All right? So it was predicated on the woman's premarital virginity. And once this was lost... If a, ma- a man were to marry a woman who was not a virgin, he was not bound by the mohar anymore. 
So once she loses, loses her virginity, there is an economic loss that happens. If the father keeps her in, her, in his house, he's assuming that loss. If she's married again, there will be no compensation. That's the problem. Now, to our, number one, to our, um, I mean, the, we are imbued by a life of grace. We, understand, we live with a different sets of rules. So this stuff sounds completely foreign to us and, and strange, and we think it's almost barbaric. Right? Well, because we can't, um, we're having a hard time putting ourselves in their shoes. Okay? But just to show you we are no more or no less barbaric than they are, think about all the issues that happen when a divorce takes place, how they split a property. Think about separate accounts for husbands and wives. Think about um, all the complexities that regulate our own lives today economically. Think about what we must do to protect our children if we die. The kind of contracts we have to sign. I mean, the, the, the documents, it, it goes way beyond a will. You all know that in California. A will is certainly not sufficient. And you would see we are no more or no less barbaric than they were. Our concerns are simply different. We're not farmers. And our, our revenue is not coming from our kids. It comes from other sources. Yeah? So we have equivalent laws. If we lose a job or if we are sick or, or disabled, then there is something that gets into, there's a medium, short-term process, there's a longer-term process if you're employed, and if you're an employer, you're required to do all these things. Same principle. No different. You understand? Okay, good. Now, in the categorical commands, he talks about the prohibition of sorcery. And um, although he says that a sorceress, speaking of a woman, should be put to death, he's not necessarily implying that women sorcerers should be put to death and men sorcerers should not. Okay, because we again, with our, we're infected so much by this whole feminist uh, tendency that we look at this with these eyes. Oh, look, the patriarchal society and this and any other. You know, just a load of nonsense because these people don't understand it in context. If, let's say today, I were to set a rule for proper conduct in the church, and I wanted to speak about one of the two genders, which of the two genders do you think I would pick? No, not male. Women. Why? Because they make up 80% of the people in the church. Right? That's, that's, that's reality. This is, this is the truth. Women are far more numerous in the church than men. Okay? So it seems that back then, there was a tendency where sorcery was practiced more by women than by men. Now, I tell you, today, in Middle Eastern circles, that's still the case. Today, in Middle Eastern circles, sorcery is practiced by far by women more than men. And I'm not talking about sorcery practiced in dark places. I'm talking about sorcery practiced in your own homes. How many do you think, look at the gender, and who do you think read more the horoscopes? Women. Who, who, drink coffee and turn it upside down and start seeing strange creatures in the marking of the coffee? Women. 
Now, what is that? True, I'm, I'm, but generally speaking, who does it? The vast majority are women. So if I were to say something about don't do this, I'd be thinking about women. But does this mean I don't want the men, I, I'm, I'm going to allow the men to do it? No. God is not giving us laws about heaven. He's not painting a pretty picture of what heaven looked like. He's addressing the needs of his people right where they are at. Yeah? By the way, if you know people in your families go to church and do all these things, you've got to tell them, stop right now. And go to confession. If you're reading your horoscope, stop right now. And go to confession. It's sorcery. There's no other word for it. The coffee thingy and all the other stuff, sorcery. There's no other word for it. Stop it. This is an infection of our Christian culture. It is not Christian to do such things at all. Also, if you, if, if you know people who put their faith in the blue thingy, the blue whatever, toward the evil eye, sorcery. You tell them to stop. Wear the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that's all you need. Right? So that sort of stuff. Okay? So this is what he's doing. Then the second one, so notice he addresses sorcery. Thinking about what? The golden calf. It's coming. Hmm? Then he addresses bestiality. So, probably these were aimed at idolatrous practices, otherwise unrecorded of the official pagan religions of popular cults. Okay, so part of the cults. Um, Of the law collections of the ancient Near East, only the Hittite legislates against bestiality, imposing the death penalty, just as is imposed here. The Hittites did the same. Except, and don't ask me why, for copulation between a human and a horse or a mule, which inexplicably is not an offense. The Hittites. The others don't even bother. There is no legislation. And oh, by the way, that includes the Romans and the Greeks. You know how in the West they tend to really elevate the Romans and the Greek and put them on a pedestal. There's no regulation among the Greeks or the Romans against bestiality. So, um, again, anyone who does that is put to death. Uh, so, for instance, yeah, so anyhow, um, and then apostasy. Apostasy is the, uh, when somebody rejects God, he apostatized. He decides that he does not belong to the community. This person is also put to death. Why? I mean, today, if somebody doesn't want to believe to belong to the Catholic Church, we don't put them to death. Why is God doing this back then? Why take such hard measures? Mm-hmm. Golden calf? Do we need a proof? Because apostasy back then does not mean, you know what? I have my doubts about this um, religion. I'm just not going to do that. I'm just going to go play the loader. It doesn't work this way. When you apostatize, you're going from this back to what? Or, exactly. Back to the golden calf. Put it this way. Your kid is in remission. Hasn't been drug, doing drugs for two weeks. If he does it one more time, what are you supposed to do? You kick him out. Go talk to any counselor. They'll tell you that. Somebody who's an alcoholic. 
and who is in remission. He went to AA, that the whole thing. If he drinks one more glass, what, what happens to him? It's over. Do you understand? So, for us, we're so far removed from this kind of behavior that we only see the consequence and we think this is rash. Why? Because we minimize the problem. We simply turn it into this little thing that really is not serious or important and we think God is rash. Why? Because the devil is a worm who whispers in our ears. See how God is unjust? But if we were to stick with the notion, no, God is just, and if he's imposing death penalty, it must be that the crime is absolutely horrendous. When you start thinking this way, you regain the right perspective on what the text is trying to say. Now, all three of those things, by the way, are considered absolutely horrendous in God's eyes because all three of them is an attack of the image of God in man. So sorcery attacks the, um, the notion that we are creatures and God is a creator. A sorcerer is somebody who thinks he or she has control over powers. You don't pray anymore. You command. So you are a god. So that destroys the image of creaturehood in us. Right? Bestiality obviously d- d- destroys the image of men and women are only made an image of God. They're made for each other. They are an image of the Trinity. Right? And then the third one, apostasy, is when you actually say, I'm going to move away from God and believe in these other things, so I'm, I'm going to demean myself and believe in things that are lesser than God. I am not doing what I'm made for, what I'm called to be. And God, in this case, completely establishes a death penalty to them because fundamentally, if you really think about that, in a world where there is no grace, there is no confession, there is no way to come back, there's no remission, it, fundamentally these people, if they're not killed physically, they're dead spiritually. Today, God doesn't do that because there is confession, because there's always a chance for somebody to come back. And this, by the way, is the way to understand the words of John Paul II when he said, in most societies, in most Western societies, when we keep people locked in, we should not use the death penalty. He never said the Catholic Church is against death penalty. The Church has not changed her stance against death penalty. The Church still upholds death penalty. But what he's saying is that because there are ways to keep some people in jail, there's always a chance for them to repent. And we must be able to extend that to them as long as possible. But in a society where there is no grace, there is no grace. You see the difference that the, 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 the sacrifice of Jesus does on the cross for us? What he brings to us? What was not present back then? Okay. Then he goes through all those disadvantages in society, the stranger, the widow, the orphan, and the poor. You can read these. The laws are very, very clear and show sensitivity towards them and how you should behave towards them and how social evil, in other words, social we commit in society against others is a sin against God, a notion we have now lost. We have now lost. Um, So uh, that is a very key concept in God's eyes, and he presents it to them. Um... And so he talks about the stranger, the widow, and the orphan. The laws are very, very clear. And it's uh, um, all the way to the end of the chapter, of the first chapter. And then the poor and loans, where you're not supposed to give to a poor a loan with interest. Because then it's really cruelty towards the loan and uh, to, to the poor. And uh, you don't take his garment away because most poor had that. That was the only thing they had to, 
to cover themselves at night. In desertic uh, climate, nights are really cold. So in some cases, they would take the garment away to force somebody to do something. And he says, if you do that, you must give it back at night. Otherwise, it's cruelty. Okay, so things, again, we don't understand today because we don't have that anymore. But it would be as if you see a, a, a homeless person, and you take away the cart and everything they have, and you tell them, if you don't do this to me, I won't give it back to you. Then this person has nothing to cover themselves with. This is the same thing that's happening here. And then he essentially tells them the duties that they have to have towards God and go through judicial integrity, how the judges must be always um, uh, impartial and how they are to treat the enemy humanely, particularly animals. So, for instance, if you see an ox of an enemy who's fallen under a weight, you must help that that, that ox. You must be able to help the animals. So you have to, to, to treat the animals humanely. Uh, and then he goes to the religious calendar, and uh, I'm not going to go through it right now, but there, I have four, four lectures on the website that talk about the entire Jewish religious calendar in full detail, covering all the feasts listed here. And finally, Renewal of Divine Promises, which I recommend you read in the second chapter, from verse 20 through 33, and you will see all the blessings that would come upon them as a society. These are society, blessings for the society. These are not sanctifying blessings to help them live a good life. And if you read those blessings and you consider all the, the issues we have today, you would see how these still apply today and how we're not getting those blessings because of all the moral disorder that we live in. All right? So in a, in a nutshell, this is what these chapters are about. God walking with his people, caring about them, watching where they are at, at the level they are at, and trying to help them out by moving them bit by bit, away from their attachment to things, towards Him. These laws do not have the life of grace in them, are not sanctifying, they will not turn them into holy souls, but they're there to form them as a nation and prepare them to think in terms of what they are lacking. Right now, they're only focused on all these things. They haven't even started to think about what they really need. So God is taking care of those things in the hope that eventually they'll stop and think and say, What do I need? And the answer would be, I need you, O Lord. But that is going to take time to develop because of the hardness of heart. So, uh, I've imposed on your time. I thank you for being patient. Let's say a word of prayer, and then we'll take some questions. Please stand. All right, we have time for some questions. Yes. So, again, we have to distinguish between God's special graces that he offered to some individuals and God's general grace is offered to all. Christ died for all. That's the key. So baptism is offered for all, regardless of their state, regardless of whether God has a predilection for them or not. God has always had chosen souls throughout history. That's a fact. God transcends the laws of the church. We are bound by the laws of the church. God is not. God can function completely outside of them. And He did, in a sense, throughout the Old Testament. But every one of those souls was accounted for by the blood of Christ. Right? Yes. But that's fundamentally the principle. This is why I say again and again, it is true that God died for all, and it's true that God uh, wished for everyone to go to heaven, but it's also true God does not bring everyone to heaven. And that is consistent with the fact that, okay, how come David? How come um, Enoch? How come um, uh, Elijah? And on and on. Right? Yep. So keep that in mind. Exactly. Any other questions? So you have two different questions. What if they got the wrong kind of help? And it happens. 
unfortunately, it does happen where abused kids end up being abused by the counselors. That can happen. You should keep on seeking help. But if they pray first, they ask the guidance of the guardian angel, they take care of the spiritual aspect first, confession, prayers, as much as they can, and then ask God to lead them to the right counselor, then the ability for them to succeed is much greater. The second thing you said, we live in a secular society. Living in a secular society, which is true, does not mean we cannot seek help. There are those who live in a secular society yet are given natural wisdom. So there are psychologists who are not Christian yet are good psychologists. So that does not preclude us from finding people who, though they do not believe, are able to help us in specific areas. See, this is a very good question. Um, and I, th- I, I suspect there's something beneath that question. Let's take somebody who is... Okay. Let's take someone who comes from a family where nobody was, nobody was drunk. Right? He has no predisposition to alcohol. He can drink a beer and be just fine. And then one day he decides, I'm going to get drunk. And he does it. Now that person just committed a moral sin. Okay? Take now someone who comes from an Irish family. Kid is 16, never had alcohol before. But in his genes, there is a very strong predisposition to alcohol. Because of generations of people who are alcoholic. He didn't know that. He drinks that first shot, and within two, three glasses, he's an alcoholic. And so, again and again, he gets drunk. Has he committed a moral sin? He hasn't. He's committed a venial sin. Do you understand? Okay. So, a kid who's grown up, being a kid, never received the right support, and because of that suffers of some sort of emotional disorder, or has a genetic predisposition to something. Another good example, um, somebody is bipolar. He's given strong medication. And unbeknownst to everybody, he has a predilection. There is a genetic disposition to this type of uh, drug, in the, and he immediately becomes an addict. Okay? So you have to distinguish those cases. So most of these people who end up being addicted and most of them are addicted when they're young, are not committing moral sins. They're committing venial sins. So despite the addiction, they're not living outside the life of grace. This is very important because we have the tendency to only judge things based on the action. Right? Because the action is horrible, we are bound to condemn the one who's committing it. So I'll I'll give you an example. Somebody leaves an a automatic gun in the house. Okay? This kid, he's seven years old, finds the thing, thinks it's a toy. Take the gun, goes outside, and then presses the, the trigger. Twelve people are dead. Has he committed a mortal sin? It's horrendous, isn't it? But the kid hasn't. Yeah? Well, first of all, even before you talk about intention... He wasn't even ready for an intention. That's the key. There is no maturity. There is no ability to reason through what he's doing. So how can you... You see what I'm saying? Okay. 
That, that's the key that we have. To, and this is how we have to show them true mercy. And not be, um, not be either judgmental or overly harsh with them. Because then, remember, those people, most of them are already thinking of themselves they're trash. Their problem, they're thinking of themselves they're trash. Uh, there's a case, actually, of a girl who had an argument with her mother and ran away from home. Uh, met a man who seemed to be really nice, invited her, invited her over to something, and then immediately gave her drugs, crack or something. She became addicted on the spot, and then he used her as a prostitute. And her mother found her on the web. And afterwards, she asked her, and she wasn't in, she, he, he, he didn't put her in a room or locked her up. She was free. She could have called her mother. And her mother said, why didn't, why didn't you never call me? And she said, her answer was, after all the drugs and all the sex I've had, I never thought you would want me back. She thought of herself as trash. Do, do you understand? So, th- somebody in a situation like this is not committing a mortal sin. It is someone... Now, where, the, where, where we are imputed, though, that does, it doesn't mean that there is no responsibility whatsoever. I don't want to go to the other extreme. Okay? Go ahead, party. It doesn't matter. You can't do anything. No, no, wait a minute. No. You must do everything in your, that, that everything you can to get out of this, even if you're failing all the time. So there is a moral responsibility. They must be. If they're saying, hey, I'm a drug addict and I'm really happy to be a drug addict. No, there is a moral responsibility right there. Right? Do you understand what I'm saying? So I don't want to, you know, go to the other extreme and say, happy, you know. I live the happy life. doesn't matter. No responsibility. No, 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 no. Okay? All right. Yeah. If you're addicted, what happens is that there is an override. Your will is unable to resist. So you go. But that's not the same as somebody who has no attachment to gambling. And here's a friend say, hey, let's go to Vegas, have fun. And he knows it's about gambling and doesn't take the time to think it through. Why am I doing this? Is that glorifying God? Am I doing the right thing here? Should I be spending my money this way? Are there other ways for me to enjoy? That's the difference. And it's a fundamental one. In one case, he, somebody says, let's go gambling, and this guy is addicted to gambling. And as soon as this word comes, his wills melt completely. There is a fireball in his soul, and he can't think of anything else. We're not talking about putting somebody. He's addicted. The problem, what this guy says in the book... The problem for addicts is they think they're in control. They think they can control it. They think if they tried hard enough, if they did the right things, if they followed the right formula, they can control it. And he says, as long as they think this way, they'll never be healed. There's no way for them to be healed. As long as they think, they can, be, they can control it. And so they go up through, <laughs> down through all these binges because it's completely out of their ability to control it. Yeah, because remember, they think of themselves as trash. So it's really important for them to think, I can control it. I can do something about it. Right? The, the, what is their option? And that's why, actually, many of them are suicidal. You just cannot stand it. Yeah, it's really tough. And the scary thing, he says, is about, according to some estimates, about 131 million people in this nation are either addicted or suffer because of addiction. So there are 28 million children of alcoholics. And imagine what happens to these kids. And all these people are, many of them are voting. 
<laughs> so imagine what happens to the laws of the nation when you end up with a situation like this. Yes. Uh, no, I didn't, I'm sorry, Rams. I didn't say somebody with a bad habit. I said, take someone who's addicted versus someone who has no addiction. So he doesn't go to, let's say, someone who's never been to, to Vegas before. Doesn't play cards, not interested by gambling at all. You're with me? And somebody says, let's go to, tell this person, let's go to Vegas. This person is morally responsible if he doesn't think it through and ask himself the right questions. Should I be going there? Why am I going there for? Is that giving God's glory? Me spending my money this way. And most of us just simply don't. So potentially, that person who has so far no addiction can end up being addicted. But he willfully chose to put himself in a situation like this one. That's what I was trying to illustrate earlier. Versus a kid who gets addicted right now or a grown-up who has, takes a medication and gets hit by it. Very different situation. This is what I was trying to say. See, we, we have to be careful because what I mean by addiction, I really mean clinical addiction where you have no ability to resist. I'm not talking about bad habits. So we can't say if somebody who uses the name of the Lord in vain is addicted because if he stops, there are no physical effect on him. You know that if somebody goes through withdrawal from drugs, there are severe physical effects. They're not simple. They're really rough. So it, it's a real clinical addiction that affects the person deeply. That's why it's really hard to break out of it. So that's what I'm talking about. Sexual addiction, where somebody is addicted to sex, um, when they don't do that, there is this pain that they can't control, and it, they become suicidal, they become depressed. I mean, there are very, very definite clinical uh, uh, symptoms all around that type of it. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about bad habits. Oh, yes, 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 yes. I thought you said, unless the grace is so strong that while they're playing bingo or gambling, they're not hit by it. God usually doesn't act this way, but I, I, I agree with you. But you know what? God usually is not going to perform a miraculous cure. Very seldom will God cure somebody like this on the spot. Yes, that's it. Those are called the righteous ones. So, including St. Joseph, for instance. St. Joseph died before Jesus died on the cross. Where did he go? Yes, that was called the limbo of the dead. And it existed only until the resurrection of the Lord. And after that, it ceased to exist. That's where Abraham and David and Jacob, all the righteous ones, waited. Yes. You're talking about limbo of the children. That's the only limbo that exists currently. There were two before. The limbo of the dead the one I just talked about, that one is gone. The rest is what happens to children who died outside of baptism. Only for children. Okay? Yeah, only for children. Only for children because there is no, uh, yeah, because there is no personal sin attributed to them. Uh, yes, only for children. Everyone has sinned. So everyone commits venial sins at least, right? Uh, so only for children. Um, and that is under examination right now. There is a commission that was set, I think, a year and a half or a year ago by the Holy Father to examine the limbo of the children and see what they're going to do with it. Because it's becoming a pressing matter with all the, um, the babies who die because of abortion. Our current understanding is that they don't go to heaven uh, because they're not baptized. So you can't circumvent baptism. 
And you can't talk about the baptism of desire or baptism by blood because there is no one on our part. So you cannot do that. And you cannot take away the authority of the parents. So when a woman aborts her child, she's exercising authority that, that is God-given. And, uh, but, but we understand. So St. Saint Augustine holds to the fact that these children who die out of baptism go to hell. St. Thomas Aquinas believes they will live on earth in a natural state of beatitude, the way Adam and Eve lived. But they will not see the, um, they will not uh, have a vision of the, they will not see the beatific vision. They will not see God the way he is. They will not go to heaven. That's the new earth. Yes, yes. So, um, and, and in the current state, they are in this limbo. They're not in purgatory, obviously, because purgatory is only for those souls who die in the friendship of God, meaning in a state of grace, and either have venial sins on their souls or must atone for temporal punishment due to sin. Uh, so they cannot be there. They're not in heaven, and they're not in hell. Where are they? They're in that state of limbo. But it's theologically weak, and they're trying... There's a commission established. I suppose it will take four years before they come up with some recommendation on what to do with this. I know of one priest who's trying to link the aborted children with the, uh, with the uh, innocent the, uh, who were killed by Herod. Right? These, these children, though, are, are unbaptized, are called the innocent ones, and, are considered, and they are in heaven uh, because it is, um, the understanding is that they shed their blood for Christ. Right? So this priest is trying to make the case, then aborted babies have shed their blood for Christ. But I don't know if that will take or not. Oh, this has always been the, the case, the, 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 the position of the Catholic Church, because the Pope, Pope uh, Paul, uh, Pius XII, I believe Pius XII is the one who said, we entrust them, or Pope Paul VI, I don't remember, but one of them, we entrust those souls to the mercy of Christ. But why does the church say precisely we entrust them to the mercy of Christ? Because the church is unable to say they're in heaven. If the church could say it, the church would have said it. So that's what they're trying to examine. That is the, to see if they can advance this or not. I don't know. Yes. Remember, new earth is part of heaven. When we say the new heaven and the new earth, it's one thing. So we in heaven are not bound. We're not sitting on a white, puffy cloud. We have a body. So this universe will be completely renewed. No, no. Yes. So uh, for these children, they will be here. They will enjoy the, the paradise of Adam and Eve. But they will not have access to beatific vision. Whereas the, the, those who are in heaven could come. I mean, come down would be wrong because you, you are never away. So heaven is where God is, right? So when you're in heaven, it means that you behold God the way he is. And just as we're talking right now, and I can think of my wife. I have a mental image of her, but it's insubstantial. It doesn't have power. Well, when you're in heaven, you are always in the presence of God, even if you're on earth. You're never away from him. You're always in union with him, no matter where you are. That's always heaven. Pardon? Not only you know him, you're always in his presence. Correct. By location is going to be the norm. It was a, it was a uh, we don't know what it is, but it's not God in person, whereas we will see God the way he is. Adam and Eve did not have the beatific vision when they were on earth, right? So it was a theophany. It was God's presence, a substantial presence, but it was not God the way he is in his true nature, which is going to be revealed to those who go to heaven after, after this life. Yes, yes. Can we pray for, assuming the limbo of the children stays the, 
true, and assuming these children will live on earth, can we pray for them? The answer is no. There's nothing to pray for. They reach their, their final state, and they're just waiting for the final judgment. Okay? Second question. Uh, again, when someone commits suicide because of an addiction, given that um, they are in a situation of an addiction, um, it is entirely possible that when they decided to commit suicide, it was as a reaction to extreme pain, in which case uh, they would not necessarily be liable the way someone who, method- who is fa- facing a financial scandal and decides to kill himself, Right? So more likely, I mean, it is entirely possible that this may not be considered a moral sin. Okay? But again, I'm not, I don't want to tell you this is a general, I mean, all I'm saying is that God will look at it on a case-by-case basis. But somebody's in addiction um, and going through enormous amount of pain, too much to handle, they'll break. Yes? Two reasons, the descent in hell. First of all, is to free those who are in the limbo of the dead and bringing them to heaven. And the second reason is to go into hell proper because, as St. Paul says, every knee in heaven on earth and under the earth shall bend before the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus went to hell to claim um, lordship over hell. He is the Lord of hell. Because if he was not the Lord of hell, how could he send anybody to hell? It is Jesus who consigns souls to hell. Not the devil. So particularly when he told them, do not be afraid of the one who destroys the body. Rather be afraid of the one who destroys the soul. He didn't mean Satan. He meant him. He's the one who destroys the soul. You understand? Exactly. That's the destruction of the soul. right? Yeah. So that's why. So even the damned must bend the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. Satan must bend the knee before, otherwise where's the victory? If Satan is free not to bend the knee before Jesus, there is no victory. Right? So when you go to the stronghold of the enemy and you subdue it, you are now the the Lord of that stronghold. That's why. Now, I gave you two simple answers. St. Peter has more complicated ones, one which I'm not going to get into because it is complicated. But these are the two Good reasons to understand why he went there. Yeah? Okay, last question. Oh, so in the story of Job, for those of you who are not aware of it, in the beginning of the, the book of Job, the devil comes and speaks to the Lord. And uh, the Lord says, have you seen my servant Job? He says, well, if you take these things away from him, he will not believe. He says, go ahead and do it. And he comes back again. He says, have you seen my servant Job? Yes, but if you take his, his family away, he won't, he won't Well, God permits it also. And then finally he says, if you take his health away, he won't. And so Job is the one who actually goes through the entire process and is able to... So the question is, is that conversation a true conversation between God and an evil one, or is it just a, uh, um, something else? Uh, my take is that it is a true conversation. And the reason why I say that, because of the conversation that happened very similarly in the Gospels between Jesus and the evil one. Why did Jesus entertain the devil when he tempted him in the desert? Why did he respond back to him? Why did he allow the devil to carry him to the pinnacle of the temple? Jesus did not save us through his divinity. In his humanity, he saved us. So what is he trying to say here? We can do it. Oh, it shows respect for the devil. Jesus respected the devil even in the Gospels. Jesus respected the devil. 
because we think in terms of power. We don't think in terms of love. Look, if you love this creature, despite everything this creature did, you still, because if God did not love the devil, let's understand this. If God doesn't love the devil, the devil would cease to exist. Non-existence is a greater evil than existence in hell. St. Thomas teaches that. So the fact that those who are in hell continue to exist, it is purely because God loves them. We can understand that until we see we meditate on it. So uh, God gave freedom to the devil. He will never take it away. So he always is respectful because God is humble. God is very humble. Humility and strength is in humility. Right? So therefore, he res- just as he respected the rich man, just as he respected, meaning that he did not respond to the devil in any uh, authorit- authoritative way until the, the, the devil asked him to worship him, which is against, right, um, the commandment. Even then he said, God is the only one you will worship, right? And then the devil departed from him. He didn't say, go away from me. Right? He didn't send him away. He didn't do any of this, right? So, like in the book of Job, so in the Gospels. Same principle, same idea. Our human nature is weak before the devil, but joined to the grace given to us by God, we conquer the evil one. God respects our freedom. He gave it to us. He will never take it back. Okay? Somebody who says, I don't want to be with God, is saying, I don't want to be a Catholic. It's the same statement. You see, we think somebody says, I don't want to be with God, means I don't want to be with the source of love. We just collapse it down to level of love, emotions. But fundamentally, heaven is Catholic. So if we say, I don't want to be in a Catholic church, we're saying, I don't want to be in heaven. It's the same statement. This is where we have a disconnect for most of us. This is where it's really hard for us to understand. Heaven is Catholic. Simple as that. Yeah? Okay? God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.